My name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking Chuck Norris. Hey, have you heard, behind Chuck Norris's beard, there is no chin, there is only another fist. That is a very funny joke, Will. And I invented it all by myself. Uh, no, folks, we're talking about uh, Chuck Norris on this episode. Mm-hmm. Probably... America's for a while most popular action star. You know, you showed me a clip of Chuck Norris on the David Letterman show in like 1980, mm-hmm. and he, Letterman was talking about how you know you're kind of uh, considered the heir to uh, Bruce Lee. And then I remember I also this week saw an episode of Siskel and Ebert where they did a focus on martial arts films. You know, they did their Siskel and Ebert take on the genre it was exactly what you expect it would be it was like you had bruce lee and then there was a lot of you know bruce lie bruce lah all those ripoffs and then chuck norris came along and brought a little energy and vitality back into the genre and by that they meant he was white they, yeah, that was the America Pills mm. perception of Chuck Norris and the martial arts genre. Like, imagine going to a double bill of a Chuck Norris film and then Dirty Ho. Like, and then you watch Chuck Norris and you're like, that's what I like. That's real American action. Well, actually, that Letterman clip of him talking to Chuck Norris was, <laughs> was kind of getting me mad because, like... Letterman mentions Bruce Lee and and Chuck Norris is like, well, you know, I like to think my pictures have a little more substance to them. You no. know, there's a little bit more emotion. The plot nope. is yeah, wrong on every single fucking count. And it's like, I don't think Bruce Lee's movies are great or anything. It's just sorry. Actually, on every single level, Fist of Fury has more going on in it than any of these movies. Yeah, we famously, I said famously, <laughs> not uh, famously, talked about Bruce Lee's films and been kind of uh, agnostic he's, towards the film. He is better than the films are yeah he is i mean bruce lee is magnetic you love watching him and that he rises above the filmmaking that surrounds him and now oh, and now slow way yeah now imagine boring films that also have a boring star in them. <laughs> okay sorry we're getting ahead of ourselves typically when we do an episode on any subject i end up with a greater appreciation of the subject <laughs> Typically, yes. 99% of the time. We're in Ron Howard territory here. This is the 1% because I am leaving this week liking Chuck Norris even less than I did when the week started. I think that you maybe had the opinion of most of the world, which is like Chuck Norris, not very good, but I'm sure he did what he did good somewhere. Oh, sure. And think some of those movies are probably fun, right? But I'm not just here to bury him because... That's too easy. I want to see if together you and I can try to piece together what was his appeal to those who found him and find him maybe appealing. Mm, absolutely. Uh, what what was the charisma that w- maybe we're not seeing? Mm. Um, All right. Can we start right from the get go? And the skeleton key that I discovered yesterday through that David Letterman clip that I sent Will. And I did not know this. I've never seen anybody mention this before. When Chuck Norris is in his movies, and we're going to repeat this over and over again, probably finding synonyms for it, he is so boring. Yes. He talks as if he's sleepy and he doesn't really know where he is. He's trying to sound cool by whispering his lines like Clint Eastwood, but he doesn't have Clint Eastwood's voice or look. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very obvious what he's trying to do. He's trying to do the, you know, strong, silent type, but to me, there's no fire behind the eyes. Mm-hmm. And that's because in that David Letterman clip, you can see Chuck, you know, smiling and having a regular conversation, and he sounds like a Southern dandy. <laughs> that's right. He, he sounds kind of like this. Yeah. Oh, my stars and goddess. That's how he talks. Yes. Now, if he had just acted that way in all of his movies, 
I don't think he would have had the success that he did. So you think Team Norris said to him, tone down. Absolutely. Because, and once he said that to me, as I was watching his movies, yeah, something did click into place because, you know, Clint Eastwood actually does have that that voice. Mm -hmm. He can do that. It doesn't sound fake, but the Norris monotone felt very affected to me. Because I think he's doing two things when he's talking and trying to be tough is that he's trying to get rid of his accent and he's also trying to get rid of his speaking patterns. Even if you watch interviews, there's like a recent one from five years ago. He still sounds like he did in that David Letterman interview. Now in movies, he still sounds reedy and Mm -hmm. and high-pitched. Yes, he does. But affected to sound not that way. So he kind of sounds like this Mm -hmm. all the way through his movies. And if you've never noticed that accent, we have just broken all of his movies for you because you will hear it with every line that he says. So he's a big phony. Yes. Is what we're saying. Not 100% because he was an actual successful martial artist. Well, and this is what distinguishes him a bit from somebody who I find more compelling on screen. Steven Seagal. Steven Seagal, who is, if anything, an even worse actor than Chuck Norris. But I don't know. I find that I do. I think there is a magnetism to Seagal in a weird way. Well, because he looks weird. Yes. I, I like Chuck Norris when he doesn't have a beard because he looks like an 80-year-old man in his early films. And he figured out that the beard kind of gives him kind of a grizzled look. And the thing about Chuck Norris is he looks like your friend's dad. That's what he looks like. And I think that's part of his appeal. I also think that Chuck Norris is most effective just as a cultural signifier. Mm-hmm. One of the movies that we watched this week is called Sidekicks. It's the one that he's in the least He plays Chuck Norris. He appears in a couple of fantasy sequences. He appears at the end as himself. A very good man. (laughs) But he's not called upon to do anything in particular. Mm -hmm. And that's when he's at his best. That's why people liked the Chuck Norris facts, because they didn't actually see him in action. He was just... They saw the the face, the the beard, and it's just, he's a signifier of like a kick-ass guy. Those facts, the memes that were going around, were originally Vin Diesel facts. And then the person changed it to Chuck Norris. The thing about Vin Diesel is he was present. He was making movies in that time. So when you would read those facts, it was like, well, Vin Diesel's not really like that. But then when you put Chuck Norris in that place, Chuck Norris hadn't done anything for a long time since Walker, Texas Ranger. He was a memory. So it was funny because you were imposing this vision on essentially a blank slate. That's right. And it was also like 80s nostalgia, Mm -hmm. too, which was a huge thing in the mid 2000s. So uh, Chuck Norris, what can we say about him? A little context for his life. Born in 1940 in Oklahoma, grew up in Kansas and then Torrance, California. If you know anything about his backstory, you know he was a shy, unathletic boy. He had an abusive father as well. And, you know, just like uh, in those comic book ads about the kid who got the sand kicked in his face and then lifted some weights Mm -hmm. and attracted all the girls. That was kind of his trajectory, too. Oh, we didn't mention, didn't you you mean Carlos Norris? (laughs) Chuck would come later. That's right. Well, in... At the age of 18, he joined the Air Force, and it was there that he discovered the martial arts. First, he trained in Tang Soon Do. Later, he founded Chun Kuk Do form, which uh, translates to universal way and has also been called the Chuck Norris system. There's some really funny rules. And and through that system, uh, if you could do a roundhouse kick that can travel faster than the speed of light, Mm -hmm. as I read on a website (laughs) called Chuck Norris Facts. Uh, If you look at the rules, they're very funny because they're like, oh, treat everybody with respect. Make sure that you honor your country and authority. And it's like, well, wait, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> your movies have not uh, taught me to treat any authority with respect because you're always, you know, breaking their balls and treating everyone with respect. We should say it right off the bat. 
Chuck Norris is one of those guys. If you look at his Wikipedia, every bad opinion that someone can have, he has. I was amazed. It, it's a perfect record of, <laughs> of like birther shit, mm-hmm. anti-gay marriage shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Even just like he wrote an angry letter about we can't let gay boys be in the Boy Scouts. And it's like the Boy Scouts have way bigger problems than that, my friend. Every every awful opinion he's had. But listen, I'm perfectly willing to separate the artist from the art. I found it hard in this case because what else is there? There's nothing. OK, but anyway, a little bit more about his life story. After he was discharged in 1962, apparently he applied to be a police officer. That's why he joined the the army is that he wanted to lead to being a police officer. Just to give you an idea about the kind of person who becomes a cop, folks. <laughs> but anyway, while he was waiting for that, he founded a martial arts school and uh, that took off. He competed in tournaments. He met Bruce Lee. He had celebrity clients that included such noted martial artists as Donnie and Marie Osmond. And Steve Bob, McQueen? Bob Barker. Yeah, and Steve McQueen. I wanted to find footage of him fighting. I could not believe I found like one fuzzy clip and that was it. Well, his first movie in 1972 was a little movie called The Way of the Dragon. I'm sure many of you have seen it. Well, his first movie is The Wrecking Crew, where he's guy in background. Oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. That's true. Because Where was he in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? <laughs> because Bruce Lee was the martial arts choreographer mm-hmm. on that Dean Martin, Sharon Tate joint. That's right. Uh, and then a couple of years later, when Bruce Lee made his third big action film in Hong Kong, and he needed a big bad to fight at the end at the Roman Coliseum, who did he call but Chuck Norris? And then Chuck Norris did his greatest scene of any movie that he's ever done unquestionably i think put him next to a very charismatic guy and at least you have one charismatic guy to look at (laughs) hey man his chest hair does a lot of that heavy lifting that then gets ripped off by bruce that's fun and i also think it's fun in that movie when he's like you know dying at the end and Mm -hmm. he's making the faces and doing the mugging I, i think that stuff's good but you can imagine that bruce lee a guy who is very conscious of his image, very conscious of how he appears on screen, is probably saying, let's get a guy who has no charisma and have him <laughs> next to me. What, what do you think? Is, is that a fair conspiracy theory? Uh, maybe he was just impressed by Chuck's martial arts skills. I'm let's sure, give him the benefit I, of I'm the sure he respected Chuck's mm-hmm. martial arts skills, because if there's one thing I respect about Chuck Norris, the man could kick. Yeah, when you see him fight in the movies, if you can see what not, he's doing. Not enough. No. But when he does fight, he's good. I don't understand this about martial artists that are appearing in movies is that you can feel them or their team being like, hey, 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 he's not just a martial artist. Let's just have him shoot guns. Let's have him drive cars. And you're like, that's not what I came here for, man. You're not a 70 year old Jackie Chan. You, you got to do what we wanted to see you do. Well, his appearance in Way of the Dragon, of course, led to other work in the Hong Kong film industry. He's in Low Ways film of the following year, The Yellow Faced Tiger. <laughs> now. I know that we said we we're going to watch it, but I was like, well, don't watch it. He's not the lead. He's the villain in the movie. Released in the U.S. as Slaughter in San Francisco. I think it's also been called Karate Cop. I have a VHS under that title. It has a great painted poster that makes it look like Chuck Norris is the star. It was Yeah, it was released in the United States like nine years after mm. to capitalize on his stardom. But his first starring roles were Breaker Breaker in 1977 and then more crucially, Good Guys Wear Black. Which I was surprised to learn that no one wanted to distribute Good Guys Wear Black, so they four-walled theaters and put it out that way. And it was a bit of a hit, right? Yeah, it was a hit. Have you seen that one? Uh, Yes, I did watch it for this podcast. Uh, It's just, it's a fine kind of like spy convoluted drama. The best thing about it is that Chuck has not taken his sleepy guy persona yet so there's still like a oh boy kind of like lilt to his voice well when that movie came out the biggest martial arts movie the one that everyone had seen was enter the dragon and that was a movie that sort of combined 
Eastern martial arts stuff with Dr. No, an American spy movie stuff. Mm -hmm. And do some of those early Chuck ones, like the Octagon, do they kind of follow that template a little bit? The Octagon is more Enter the Dragon, but you do get some kind of like spy light shenanigans in some of his films. Like An Eye for an Eye has a lot of that like, oh, he's kind of a detective, but there's silliness that's going on. Like... Uh, the guy that plays Odd Job in the James Bond films, Professor Toru Tanaka appears in a bunch of his movies as a villain. But you also get in these early films, the filmmakers realize, uh-oh, we're stuck with Chuck in this. Let's try to surround him with character actors. So, for example, like An Eye for an Eye has Christopher Lee as the villain. Richard Roundtree is in it. I can understand the logic behind wanting to do this, but all it does is like hold a mirror up to Chuck and let the audience know he's bad. He cannot deliver dialogue. Now, he famously said this himself, that he wasn't, uh, you know, a very good actor. When asked about David Carradine's martial arts skills, the famous quote where he goes, David Carradine is as good a martial artist as I'm an actor. Right. <laughs> and then when you see the two of them together, you realize how much more important acting is. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, if he had made kind of like just fight movies where like he fought every five minutes maybe there i could recommend them and also where they tried to make him speak as little dialogue as possible oh my god oh my god okay so there's a force of one in 1979 the octagon in 1980 that was a pretty big hit because it also was like kind of riding that ninja wave i don't know if enter the ninja had come out at that point if it did or not like that's what made chuck norris and something very important to remember and this is expanded on in that great book these fists break bricks that came out recently which is all about Amer uh, martial arts movies and culture in america 1973 enter the dragon is a huge hit there's that first wave of movies like five fingers of death that are big theatrical hits and then after 1974 75 basically it was only black people and minorities going to see martial arts movies in theaters now there was still a market there were still people who wanted to see them like you know the kids loved them when they started showing on tv in the 80s the kids loved to watch them but it was regarded as like that's a black thing you know yeah i don't want you know things that are not white can we get a white guy in there doing these things yeah and martial arts movies sort of became and if they were not already in the popular imagination sort of like day class a and, mm -hmm. and like dangerous if anything you go to one of those theaters that the black people go to to see them so chuck norris came along and made it safe for white people again and i think that's very important to remember i mean you look at some of these movies a movie like i don't know invasion usa or whatever the the missing in action films they are reactionary movies for sure and just as bruce lee was a kind of there was a certain amount of nationalism in bruce lee's early movies fist of fury with its plot about you know the chinese fighting against the japanese and the second world war that movie was a hit all over the world because uh, minority groups could uh, and and other underdogs could sort of project themselves onto it. You know, Bruce Lee was the champion of all underdogs. Well, along comes Chuck Norris in the '80s, and he's the champion of all overdogs. He's you know he's, he's like the white guy with a pickup truck. He has a farm. Yeah, he, he's the Yellowstone of the day. Yeah, and you know he's he's going back to Vietnam and he's going to win it this time. Mm -hmm. That that that's what he was. So so I don't like him for that reason too. <laughs> I think it's interesting though early on that the filmmakers didn't know what to do with Chuck, that they're trying to find a, you know, some mixture to like get him charismatic in some way. Like Steve Carver, who made an eye for an eye, which is a pretty straightforward kind of Chuck spy kind of shenanigan movies. Steve Carver clearly realized, okay, this ain't working. So when he made Lone Wolf McQuaid, his answer was, 
I'm going to try to make this a spaghetti western as much as possible. Right. So this is a movie that's shot in Texas, made to look very much like a Clint Eastwood, Sergio Leone landscape. I mean, they got an Italian composer who does an amazing Morricone, maybe liable for lawsuit soundtrack. And I mean, I don't know what the point of summarizing the plot of this movie is. Uh, it's David Carradine's a bad guy. There's arm shipments. That's all that matters. Yeah. And, and Chuck's got an ex-wife who's very understanding and a daughter who he loves. There's problems y- y- around. You can, you can, you can fill it in now. Too much emotion in this movie. I think the first eight minutes before Chuck opens his mouth work in this movie. <laughs> I agree. Because like, you get like, he's sweaty and dirty. He looks kind of cool. And then he, there's, uh, I think, horse smugglers, which he just brutally murders. And he's introduced like to the villain standing as they fire bullets and they just ricochet all around him. The camera and the music are doing a lot of work. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe if you were there, you would look cool <laughs> under those shots and stuff like that. Maybe. Maybe I would. But anytime David Carradine is in this movie. I mean, he just blows Chuck out of the water. It's, it's embarrassing. And like, if somebody else have been there would i have been so drawn to david carradine i don't know but i all i know is david carradine is very charismatic he even has leon isaac kennedy there who does no fighting no fighting well so that quote that chuck did about like oh he's not much of a martial artist when they're doing their hand-to-hand brawl at the end it doesn't matter i'm looking at carradine because yeah. carradine has fire behind his eyes i mean he's like chomping a cigar he's doing he's doing stuff okay mm-hmm. i think someone told chuck do as little as possible, and that will make you more compelling. But unlike Clint Eastwood, when he made A Fistful of Dollars, you know, Clint Eastwood, the story goes, he went through the script and he like cut all dialogue out. There's too much dialogue in even Lone Wolf McQuaid. Oh, yeah, when he has to do emotional stuff about his daughter, mm-hmm. I mean, oh God, hopeless, hopeless. But yes, to be a minimalist doesn't mean that it's artless, mm-hmm. you know? Like Clint Eastwood, in any of his movies, in any of those spaghetti westerns or in the Dirty Harry movies, you know, he conveys a lot in his eyes. He conveys a lot with a smirk, uh, just with his body language. You know, there's a lot. It's like Buster Keaton. Buster Keaton is not just a stone face. He's doing all sorts of things with very small gestures that communicate whole worlds. Chuck Norris is waiting for a train. And that's the look that he has on his face, no matter what's happening around him. Yeah, it's 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 just awful. I mean, I, I don't I can't stand him. <laughs> and if there were like great martial arts sequences in some of these movies, maybe you could go, oh, OK, I understand it. They are few and far between. And a lot of them are just poorly shot in that David Letterman interview. Chuck's like, oh, yeah, we make uh, full contact all the time. And it's like, why? These camera angles stink. I don't know what's going on. And there's no kind of storytelling in the choreography. The one that I liked the best of the movies I watched this week was probably Code of Silence from 1985, which I also don't think is great or anything. But, you know, I mean, he has like a real kind of like journeyman guy who knows what he's doing. Andrew Davis. Andrew Davis, later the director of such films as The Fugitive. Under Siege and Above the Law. And by the way, Above the Law is basically a remake of this movie. (laughs) Yes. You know, just with Seagal instead of Norris. I think this movie is just kind of fun. It's a Chicago cop thriller. It's twisty. You know, it's Chuck is the one honest cop. There's a war between the Italian and Latino gangsters. There are a lot of dirty cops who are in on it. Chuck is, you know, a force of one trying to trying to break the code of silence. There are just some really good action set pieces in this movie. I'm thinking of when he's fighting on top of the moving train. Yes, he's on there. I mean, he looks very uncomfortable. <laughs> Doesn't want to move too much. But there's a really good fight scene, too, when he's in, he's in the basement and he takes on those. Oh, tenors. and there's like 100 guys. That's a great fight scene. And that's one of the only fight scenes in these movies where the director actually shows him doing it. Shows mm-hmm. him doing those kicks. That's the thing is he can do this stuff. 
Why don't you show him do it now? Can he do many stunts? No. Most of the stunts in his movies, if they're like big ones, they're done by Aaron Norris, his brother, who looks exactly like Chuck. He did star in one movie called Overkill, and he also became kind of the shepherd of Chuck, directing the movies later in his career. Movies like Top Dog. <laughs> yes, that's true. The one where it's Chuck and a dog. <laughs> yes. Or Hellbound, the one where I think he fights the devil. I've seen it. It's not good. So, yeah, I mean, Code of Silence also has that great Chicago atmosphere. By the end of the movie, movie he's just fighting with a robot because it's like listen who is the most uncharismatic thing that we can put beside chuck let's just get a robot it'll make chuck look cooler i guess that's a cool scene though too that i love that robot though the robot blows chuck off the screen big yeah he does <laughs> big big shootout at like the docks and the big mm-hmm. abandoned factory henry silva oh code oh. of silence great character actor oh henry silver's in it didn't you love the guy from Angels with Filthy Souls oh, from yeah. the Home Alone? Oh, yeah. Every line of dialogue sounds exactly like him talking in the Home Alone <laughs> movie. Uh, what else did we watch? We watched, of course, probably Chuck Norris's most famous film. So we didn't even really get into his canon period, which I think kind of cemented him as America's action star. You have the Missing in Action trilogy, Hero and the Terror, and probably the most famous one of them all, Invasion USA. Well, yeah, this is a Golan and Globus film for canon films now it's funny i saw this one Mm -hmm. over 10 years ago i saw it with an audience had a great time now i've always been kevin mccarthy at the end of invasion of the body snatchers and i've always been saying to this has come up multiple times over the years i've said oh but invasion usa that one's fun yeah and i'm like no no it's not it's not as fun as you think it is richard lynch is pretty good and that scene was billy drago but come on all i can say is you know in the year 2009 or whatever with that audience i found it fun yesterday watching it on tubi by myself didn't find it fun at all now what's weird about you having like a, a rapturous audience experience of it is like even watching it now were you like what were we enjoying yes <laughs> yeah. i was thinking that i don't know i think 2009 or 10 or whatever it was uh we were all feeling chuck norris fever mm-hmm. you know we, we were saying the facts but like even from an action standpoint this movie like chuck just stands there with his machine gun and go, i think that tickled me a little bit when i saw mm-hmm. it the first time the fact that he was doing so little in this movie yes and i was also tickled by the plot which is silly i mean he barely talks in this movie either like that's something that joseph zito i think figured out he's like no no no, no chuck and missing in action talks no more chuck talking and i think they should have done it even more he should have talked even less no dialogue maybe his throat's cut at the beginning of the movie he or should have like just been like a one-man army and mm-hmm. that's it he has a few quips doesn't he yeah yeah the, they're amusing anyway invasion usa it's from 1985 it's from the height of the reagan era and things are pretty good on christmas eve in florida but then all of a sudden ah those cuban terrorists the the commies storm the beach and the communists begin a full-scale takeover of the united states now i was very amused by the opening scene where you see a boat of refugees coming from cuba finally finally we've gotten help i know and they're in a boat they're like oh america is coming up by the shore and then they're greeted by a boat of what looks like American Border Patrol and they say welcome to America and I thought oh that's funny that that certainly wouldn't happen for a bunch of Cuban refugees but then what would probably happen does that they just shoot them all they shoot them all then you find out it's actually the communist invaders now what's really funny is 
the American Border Patrol would probably do that too. <laughs> yes, it wouldn't make a difference. <laughs> they wouldn't be welcome to America. Uh, but anyway, yeah, the communists take over America, and you don't hear much about what they believe. They just hate freedom. Yeah, they hate freedom. I think there's a lot of signifiers in this that people really enjoy. Like Chuck Norris's all gene en- ensemble is fun to look That's at. That's right. This is kind of when you think about Chuck Norris, this is the image you see. He's like wrestling with gators or crocodiles. I don't know which one. He's got a gun in each hand, mm-hmm. which I don't love. He has, like, uh, that cool boat, but they don't really have a big action scene on it. Like, this is the thing every time I watch, and I watch this movie over and over again for multiple reasons. Many podcasts have been done over the years on this movie. And, like, every time I'm like, Chuck isn't even doing anything. Like, the first action scene, he jumps out of a building and that's it. There's an explosion and just people die. It's mostly massacres in this movie. I know. And I found the movie actually kind of unpleasant for that reason. It's not it's not as funny as I remembered it. It's just, yeah, a lot of people getting shot. Like them pulling up and like blowing up during uh, Christmas. I guess that's kind of fun. Maybe just the idea of, oh, my God, terrorists in America. And that's e- wild. And even in the second half when, you know, there's the big, there are all the tanks on the on the streets. Yeah, but Chuck is not even involved in that stuff. Instead, it's sort of, it's Chuck and the big bad doing this cat and mouse gunfight shootout in this nondescript office building. <laughs> it's so cheap. You, you really feel the Golan and Globus budget <laughs> in this movie at times. Like, it's just like, it feels almost like the Golan and Globus offices themselves they shot in. And I would say, yeah, as a communist takeover of America movie, it's a little underwhelming. Mm-hmm. Like, let's see New York get capsized. Let's see DC. But people love this movie. Like, you look at Letterboxd and people are like, ah, oh, so much fun. Maybe we had to be there. Like, when it came out, I don't or know. Or when I saw it, 10 years ago yeah. i don't know maybe i'll see it with a crowd one day i don't i don't, I don't think you would have fun you, <laughs> would, if, you wouldn't have fun with a bunch of normies like cheering everyone chuck is enjoying it though i don't know maybe chuck's you know time has gone by i will say though on the loose cannons podcast where me and matthew kumar went through all of cannons films we watched missing in action 2 and were shocked at how much we enjoyed it so if there was one chuck norris film i would recommend i did not recommend this to will this week it was missing in action 2 well i'm done with chuck for a while yes i've i've overdosed on this man mm-hmm. but i will say i kind of liked sidekicks mm, i like Sidekicks, and that's an aaron Nor- aaron norris joint too right so this one is from 1993 i believe and it's really just a kids movie family film that chuck guest stars and <laughs> It's so funny. The kid has posters of like the hitman and R-rated Chuck Norris film in his bedroom. Yeah. So it's a, uh, you know, just a pretty gentle family movie. Jonathan Brandis, who uh, fans will know as being the star of Ladybugs with mm-hmm. uh, Rodney. Daniel. And the never ending story, which is probably his most famous role. Yeah. I think he's good in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. He's solid. He's just a, an asthmatic, unpopular kid who dreams, you know, like Mia Farrow watching Jeff Daniels up on the screen about Chuck Norris and dreams of a different of a different kind of world where he could be Chuck Norris's sidekick. I think that Chuck Norris works in this movie because he's barely in it. And when he is, it's always some like goofy kind of like he's in a Western now or he's in a medieval movie. I also think that, okay, so long story short, the plot is the kid self-actualizes through the martial arts, Mm -hmm. but he also remains a good kid. There's a villain martial arts teacher played by Joe Piscopo. Oh, probably Joe Piscopo's best performance. I I would agree. I think Piscopo, you know, if you're going to hire him for anything, have him mugging in a children's Oh my God, he's mugging so much. And I think he's kind of fun. I don't he's know. He's like Jim Carrey in the mask. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I, I kind of liked him in this, believe it or not. I mean, you also have Bo Bridges being the uh, dad of the kid. Yeah, uh, Mako. Oh, great. As his martial arts instructor. Good cast, yeah. honestly. And then at the end of the movie, at the big Karate Kid style martial arts tournament, who shows up but Chuck Norris as himself. 
and he is required only to be likable. And I think that's good. I mean, we've talked about his kind of reedy, high-pitched voice. I think he does fine in this yeah, movie. Yeah. yeah, he leans into the soft side, mm-hmm. and I liked him a little bit. Mm-hmm. I still don't think he's very charismatic. No, but you almost like him in this movie because the kid likes him so much. Yes, so. he's well used. Let's yes. put him. That, let's put it that way. All right, Will is making an order for that seventy dollars Canadian Blu-ray set that just came out of Sidekicks. Vinegar Syndrome selling that much for Sidekicks. Good <laughs> God! I was surprised at how much I enjoy it, which was a real downhill slope because that was the first Chuck Norris film I watched for this. <laughs> I truly thought I was going to have more fun this week with these movies. Yeah, me too. And I think it just—they're <sighs> boring. They're too long as well. I There's mean, no that, action in oh, them. Oh God! We also watched that one. Uh, Silent Rage. Oh, well, I like that one because it's weird. Because it's like a slasher film that suddenly Chuck Norris is just wandering around it. Uh, I guess. I mean, I mean, good God. <laughs> there, are, All these movies are 107 minutes long. I, why are they that long? They're all over like an hour 40. Oh. I, I could not wrap my head. Even like Invasion USA supposedly was cut down from like three out, which is ridiculous. Oh, I, they should have kept cutting. Yeah, kept cutting. <laughs> like a Chuck Norris film should be 70 minutes long. I agree. And yeah. maybe even shorter. And there's just an action scene every five minutes. Here, here's an idea. Cut out everything that's not an action scene and then maybe cut out some more. And, and then well, you'll have a good- Make sure he doesn't talk either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And But have we gotten down to why Chuck Norris was so popular? I think it just comes down to he was white. He could kick. I would also propose that, you know, in the 80s, it was almost common knowledge. It was almost received wisdom that action stars don't act. They do something else. They're men of action like Clint Eastwood or Arnold Schwarzenegger, Van Damme, Seagal. I, by, mind you, I think some of these guys are better actors than others. Yes. But the Van Damme, top. Yes. Stallone, second. <laughs> yeah. But the received wisdom was they don't act Mm -hmm. and it's not important for them to act. And I think it was almost considered like unseemly or perhaps even like feminine for for action stars to be able to act. But the thing about Chuck is that him being charismatic, even though it is acting, people wouldn't perceive it as acting. And he also, for a lot of people, embodied a certain attitude, you know? He was the embodiment of, like... Well, that's a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of it. And also just, you know, the standard, like, guy who doesn't crack a smile and don't take no shit from no one, you know? And we didn't talk about Walker, Texas Ranger, because I don't think I've ever seen a full episode of it. No, I mean, my late uncle loved it. Really? (laughs) Yeah, he watched it every day. And uh, because he loved loved Chuck's attitude. Now, I did not take no crap from no one. Some clips of it, because of course he teamed up with Sammo Hung, who had martial law. It's really funny to hear Chuck go, Sammo, come over here, Sammo, Sammo. Two uh, two guys who both fought Bruce Lee on screen. Yeah, that's right. Uh, But two guys who also did full contact all the time. Uh, One of them pays off more than the other, but uh, we'll leave it up to the audience to decide. I hope no one is angry listening to this episode. Oh, if you love Chuck Norris, that's great. Mm -hmm. I envy you. (laughs) I wish I loved Chuck Norris. I mean, we wish we had more joy in our life, right? Yeah. I will say that I just watched Hard Target again with Jean-Claude Van Damme. So fun. Yeah. Is Van Damme fun in that movie? That's the question. Or is it John Woo style? Oh, Van Damme's fun. He's so fun. I think it's a great marriage. My name's Chance because my mother took one. (laughs) Yeah. I think the style in that one, John Woo's slow-mo with... Van Damme's goofy faces. Like him jumping up on like the motorcycle and like fire. It's just fun to look at Van Damme. Two great tastes that taste great together. So I would recommend that one instead. Yes. I mean, what's interesting about Chuck though is that he never had a career resurgence. Like maybe he was just unable to. Like he did appear in The Expendables 2. Well, but do you remember when The Expendables 2 came out, he was apparently very upset because the movie was rated R. Yes. And he has 
since been born again. He is not for violence in movies. So he can't make movies, period. I mean, I think that would hamper you as an action star if you won't be in an R-rated movie. I did look at like, oh, maybe we should watch this like weird born again horror style film starring Mike Norris, son of Chuck, with Chuck appearing as kind of like a Jesus-like figure in it. I do kind of want to see that. Maybe as a future Patreon episode. I don't know. You're done with Chuck though. You're done. Well, I might make an exception for that one. I'll be back. I'll, I'll watch Chuck again in the future because, you know, like dementia will kick in if it hasn't already. And I'll be like, oh yeah, Chuck Norris. Those movies are fun. Yeah, he couldn't have been popular that long without- For no reason. <laughs> yeah. So again, please, if you like Chuck Norris, that's great. Write in and tell us why you like him and just know that we would like to like him We too. would love to like him, yeah. So speaking of which, do we have any letters? We do have letters. And where can they write to us, Justin? They can write to us at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. Our first letter is from Anthony P. And he goes, Dear Justin and Will, The Important Cinema Club Podcast has quickly become one of my favorites. Love to hear it. My go-to podcast for all things movies. Your taste and recommendation that led me to seek out the writings of Jonathan Rosenbaum, discover my own love for Hong Kong cinema. J-Ro, I hope we're getting you thousands of new readers. I just want to say that like the, I, I am always delighted when people say that our podcast gets them to check out things. Mm-hmm. It makes my heart warm. Especially that, like, I mean, Hong Kong cinema has never been more popular right now than it's ever been in our lifetimes, I think. That's probably true. In our circles, I feel. Not in, you know, general consciousness. Well, it's been let into the canon much more than it used to be. Yeah, like when you think of, you know, Crash and Tiger, Hidden Dragon coming out or Rumble in the Bronx, I think that opened up people to Jackie Chan or, you know, whatever Miramax would put out. But as far as, like, general martial arts, not really. But now. But now, well, you go on the Criterion channel and they've got a whole Michelle Yeoh retrospective Mm -hmm. now. This letter writer asks, as a fellow proponent and enjoyer of physical media, I'm wondering if you could share some of your personal favorite releases. What commentary extra gems have made your purchases worthwhile? And do you have any specific examples relating to Hong Kong cinema? This is a broad question, so let's keep it to Hong Kong cinema. What is your favorite Hong Kong cinema release that's come out recently? There's been so many. I'm looking at my shelf behind me where they all are. And like, it's kind of fascinating to watch like companies like Eureka, 88 Films and Vinegar Syndrome vie for the same movies <laughs> and try to like top each other. For example, 88 Films announces, we're doing that. Magic Cop, which is a movie I very much like because it's directed by Stephen Tung, an action choreographer I really enjoy. And then the next day, Eureka's like, we're doing all the Mr. Vampire films. Two, three, four. Well, they're not doing Mr. Vampire in 1992, but they are doing Vampire versus Vampire. That's right. Because I think one of those one stars Sammo Hung, and I think it's... Four. Mr. Vampire 1992 is owned by Warner Brothers, mm. who will never release it. And Mr. Vampire 3, for people who have not seen it, not a hopping vampire movie, but great. And one of the like wild uh, Hong Kong martial arts films. So really, we're just advertising for Eureka Films. Well, there have been so many great Hong Kong releases. And God, it's it's hard to pick just one. So I'm just going to arbitrarily pick. I thought 88 Films' release of The Young Master was excellent. Oh, I love that Young Master. That booklet it has not been topped when it comes to booklets. That's right. So it has multiple cuts of the movie. And this version might be out of print now. Yeah, I think it is. Which is too bad because it, ha- it came with a booklet that most booklets are schlock. But this one had a whole analysis of Jackie Chan's early career up to and including The Young Master. I had never heard of most of the stuff. I mean, it just like if you've only read his autobiography, Mm -hmm. which is quite inaccurate on a lot of his early career, this explains exactly what happened in his early career. It explains how the big falling out with Lo Wei that involved Jimmy Wang Yu and all that, how that actually went down. Um, Yeah. If I, I'm, I'm looking at my shelf right now, it's behind Will, trying to figure out what is my favorite one and trying to also pick up, pick out why it's my favorite. Like, for example, 
I love that the Seventh Curse got a big box set from 88 Films, but to pinpoint like one specific thing on it that I'm like, oh, this, you know, raised it above, you know, the other times that I watch it. That's, that's more difficult. I will say that 88 Films release of Dragons Forever, whether it be the Blu-ray or the 4K that recently came out, has new subtitles by friend of the podcast, Dylan Chung, that like completely change the movie and make it so much more watchable, so much more funny as well. And it's wild how like subtitles that I talked to Dylan. I'm like, how long does it usually take you to write subtitles? And he was like, hmm, usually about a month to do a translate. I'm like, oh my God. That's because he like, he writes it as if he's like writing a novel and he wants to get it as good an experience as he can for other audiences. He did the same thing with Stephen Chow's uh, for Written City Cop, which he wrote the subtitles for, which, I mean, those subs are tough because that's all Cantonese wordplay, but Dylan did his best at being able to like go above and beyond when usually it's just done, you know, oh, let's just get a basic translation out there. And I mean, just look at 88 Films, Eureka, Vinegar Syndrome started doing a bunch of releases as well. We've gotten to the point in physical media that like Vinegar Syndrome released their slate and I went, I have most of those. That they're like reprints or another company put them out. Even the partner labels. I'm like, I got that Blu-ray like a couple months ago or another company put it out. So we're reaching that boiling point where I'm like... I didn't have to order anything because I was like, eh, I already have all the stuff that I would want. Wow. Well, uh, hopefully there will be other national cinemas to explore. I mean, they are. They're going deep into Taiwanese cinema. All these companies now are like, oh, we got this. We got this. We got this. I love Taiwanese cinema. Yeah, it's great. I want all the new remasters, as many as possible. And as far as just general, like what are best of, we did like an episode about our favorite physical media, didn't we? Maybe a best of year Patreon episode. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That sounds right. Yeah. So I would say uh, get on Patreon and uh, look at that. You know what was a great box set is Arrow Video's Gamma. Set. Oh, I, I was literally looking at it a few days ago because I was talking to someone that like it came with the Dark Horse comics in it. And I was watching Gamera the Brave as well, which I haven't seen. That box set is, I like to say that Arrow hasn't done anything in a while. Like they've kind of slowed down their release. It's because when you do something like Gamera, you're like, all right, I'm done. Like, what am I, how am I going to top this? So, and unfortunately that one, the big box set is also out of print, but you can get the little ones that are each era. And would recommend both of them because they're great. Our next letter is from Tom. And his question is, I'm curious if there are some subjects you've intentionally been avoiding for the podcast. And if so, why? It seems like a podcast with your format would have done episodes on Howard Hawks, John Ford, Stanley Kubrick, or uh, Federico Fellini. Have you made the choice to avoid some of the most famous directors? Thanks for the great podcast, Tom. Yes. (laughs) Uh, We've avoided Kubrick very consciously. Mm -hmm. We've avoided... I mean, Hawks is somebody who, like, over the last few years, I've been slowly trying to go through all of them. Are you still on that mission? Not for a while, but Mm -hmm. I want to return to it. Yeah, because you said, I want to do the Hawks episode after I've watched every Howard Hawks film. And I went, all right. And it may never happen at this point. I mean, I've been doing them with my girlfriend, and she only wants to watch, like, a John Wayne movie every six months. Yeah, understandable. And when it comes to like Kubrick, I feel that's one. I don't think we'll ever do a mainline episode on Kubrick. I we mean, The Shining as, as a Patreon, Patreon. Yeah. I mean, what is there to say, really? Yeah. <laughs> the Blank Tech uh, did Kubrick. Go listen to their podcast. Three hour episodes on each movie. Like, what are we going to say that'll be different than that? John Ford. I would like to do John Ford. I just think I, I, that's another very vast filmography that I feel intimidated by. You know by. what that means. The bad John Ford. <laughs> bad John Ford. Oh, I love it. Which ones would we watch for that? What are the bad ones? I, I mean, there's a lot of bad ones. If you look- che- Cheyenne Autumn. Mm-hmm. Is that supposed to be? Or the, what's that other one? Like his other last movie. The- oh, I like that one. The one it's like, uh, it's it's like women centric. Yes. The, still unavailable. I know. I know which one. What if we did the bad Howard Hawks? Actually, we could do like <laughs> Red Line or. Oh, um, yeah. Which uh, is pretty the pyramid good. Pyramid one. The Pharaoh. 
Pharaohs, Land yes, of the Pharaohs. Yes, or um, Man's Favorite Sport, which I also kind of like. Oh, Man's Favorite Sport's pretty good. Yeah. I like it. People might think it's one of the bad ones. I don't know. Yeah, we could definitely do that. I mean, uh, the Bad Howard Hawks is like the ultimate cage cinema kind of subject because they like made their bones on, oh no, Land of the Pharaoh. There's a lot to like there. Oh wait, was it Cage Cinema or was it the there's like the Hoxians, which were like the other the, group? The Hitchcocko Hoxians yeah, and yeah, the, exactly. the I don't know, yeah, I don't know. Rest in peace, all of them. They're all gone now. <laughs> but we'll get to these things eventually because as per usual, we will do every topic under the sun. And Kubrick will be the last one. So what is our Patreon episode this week, Will? Well, we are looking back on the AFI, the American Film Institute's 1998 list of the 100 best movies of all time. And we are deciding what stays and what goes. Now, this was very fun because in the middle of the episode, we decided that directors can only have one movie in this list, which is where most of the conflict comes. Well, not conflict, but discussion comes out of. And along the way, I mean, this is a list that is, is very flawed. Yes. If anyone who's seen it, they know it's flawed. And it's also a list that comes from a different time, a different time in the canon. I think we by the end of it, we only had like 40 movies left or something like that. Yeah. So check it out. Mm-hmm. And then next week, what are we going to be talking about? We're going to be talking about Jolene Compton. You who is with that? that? I have no idea. She's a filmmaker whose pictures were very difficult to see, which includes the kind of new wave inspired Stranded, which uh, she actually stars in, and the Plastic Dome of Norma Jean. Now, the Plastic Dome of Norma Jean is one that uh, our pal Peter saw years and years ago and he had to like see it like on a moviola or something like that and he was like it's amazing i can't wait for it to get out there it played right when the pandemic hit and then it seemingly disappeared and then flicker alley in conjunction with ucla library just quietly put it out on blu-ray a couple weeks ago so we will be talking about both of those movies including she also made a third kids movie and it's fascinating that like a filmmaker like this just two films i think one of them was self-funded and then just gone no one really talks about her. I mean, you had never heard about her before. And these films are very interesting. Someone described her second film, The Plastic Dome of Norma Jean, as a female-centric downer version of Cash Flag Jr.'s Wild Guitar. Oh, yeah. So there will be some interesting stuff to talk about there. So until next week, my name is Justin DeClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Do you want to be the coolest person on your block and impress friends and family? Then you should listen to the Bay Street Video Podcast and learn the new and notable movies that are coming out every week. Recorded at a brick-and-mortar video store in Toronto, Canada. The show features Mark Hansen, the product manager of the Bay Street Video Store, and Justin DeClue, that's me, going through all of the new movies that are released on physical media every week. Don't collect Blu-rays or DVDs? Doesn't matter. Give it a listen anyway, because you will learn about all the odd films that are coming out. New, old, classics, wild DTV films that you have never and would have never heard about if you didn't listen to the Bay Street Video Podcast. Bay Street Video Podcast is available where all good podcasts can be found. Subscribe now! So, it was the big festival that we all care about. Uh, the one that happened Berlin Ale? I can't even say it. Yeah, the Berlin Film Festival. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, a lot of fun stuff was happening there. Johnny Toe was just fucking talking trash. That's right. About uh, Chinese censorship. Uh, Mr. Steven Spielberg got a lifetime achievement. Yes, and this is what I wanted to talk about, is that Steven Spielberg, during a press conference, said 
uh, you know, my next project will be um, adapting Stanley Kubrick's Napoleon as an HBO miniseries. Now, wasn't Carrie Fukunaga going to do that? Oh, yeah. Carrie Fukunaga is having his own issues. Yeah. Of, uh, you know, so I don't think that'll be happening. Okay. So Steven Spielberg doing another Kubrick project. How do you feel about that? Good. Yeah. yeah. Why not? Yeah. I, I think that's fantastic. I mean, AI is one of his best movies. Oh, I love AI. So good. I'm hardly the first to observe that there are certain differences between Kubrick and Spielberg. I feel like his version will be blue if I had to take a guess. Tint, like visually blue? Yeah, because he's working with that cinematographer that makes all of his movies blue. Yeah, that's true. I, I think one of the things that's interesting about AI is seeing these two very different sensibilities mixed together. Mm -hmm. Going into the Brundlefly machine and something beautiful coming out. AI was... What's really fascinating about it, did we talk about it in an episode before? I don't, I don't think, think we, we ever did, have. Yeah. yeah. Is that like that kind of like sentimental Spielberg is not clashing, but kind of heightening the downer Kubrick energy, especially the ending where people are like, well, I don't like that ending. It's like, that's the point. Like, it's like the anti Steven Spielberg ending. It's interesting when you think about, you know, something like Barry Lyndon. Well, oh, look, all of Kubrick's movies are very. They don't hate humanity. Mm -hmm. They just have a kind of God's eye view of humanity. You remember, Cold is the term you're looking for. <laughs> I guess. But you remember how Barry Lyndon ends with that caption? I forget the exact wording, but it's like, you know, rich or poor, whatever, whatever. They're all in the same place now. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that's very different than Spielberg's mm -hmm. attitude. Spielberg is very up yeah. with humanity, I think. Absolutely. Or kind of, yeah, that optimism that's been rotting, you know, the multiplexes, et cetera, et cetera. I see Jonathan Rosenbaum for more information, but like, even though he loves AI. Right. But all those movies like Amistad or Schindler's List, they're ultimately about like, you know, historical atrocities that, you know, a couple of good people came and solved. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I don't know a lot about Kubrick's proposed Napoleon film. <laughs> well, I have this giant book here if you want to read it with all the notes and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, you can get a huge coffee table book that has everything in it. Uh, supposed to star Jack Nicholson, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. The idea of Spielberg and his particular point of view trying to adapt Kubrick's point of view, I'm just interested. I'm interested in what, what that looks like. What I would say like. is you don't change a word of that Kubrick screenplay. Or you get a real master like Mordecai's David Kep, and you do a little <laughs> rewrite there because he wrote a lot of Spielberg films. Actually, he's a Tony Kushner guy now, so I feel like Tony Kushner's going to have a crack at that. Well, before. David Kupp does the fun ones, and Tony Kushner does the serious ones. Mm. Did David Kupp write the next Indiana Jones? Don't know. He probably has a story credit somewhere on there because he, he did do uh, Crystal Skull. So I think he was involved with that. Yeah. So anyway, I, I am very eager to see what Spielberg does. And that made me think, though, like, can you think of any of those? Somebody else is picking up the mantle of something that was abandoned and you actually like it other than AI? I mean, would you count the other side of the wind or something like that? You mean, no, you mean I wouldn't an, count the other side of okay, the wind. Like, yeah. an, like a project a that was never made mm -hmm. that somebody went and made. I mean, of course, I woke up early the day I died. That's it. That's yeah. it. The, the film that was made from the unmade Ed Wood script. And who can forget, of course the completely forgotten version of Orson Welles' The Brass Ring. Yes, by, what was like oh. a Hickenlooper. Yeah, George Hickenlooper. He apparently changed the script a lot. Yes, because it was rewritten by, oh, he's a critic, he's in the Oh, channels. F.X. Feeney. That's right, F.X. Feeney. I don't know why you would bother to do that. <laughs> no, I don't know either. Wait, isn't there, uh, I'm trying to think of like Orson Welles' product. I mean, Orson Welles is the king of that, of like, who could we get to finish this Don Quixote film? Of course, the man that was there. Jess, Jess Franco. Franco. <laughs> <laughs>
Where's our Criterion release of that? Yeah, I would I would love to see somebody make an unmade Jess Franco script if such a thing exists. Oh, I'm sure they do if, if people haven't already done that. And other than that, I, I can't really think of anything that has been laying around and somebody picks up and goes, oh, I can make this better. I'll be interested as the project goes on just to hear like w- what Spielberg's process is. I'm curious if he is going to do it as close as possible or to what extent he brings his own uh, vision and liberties to it. I mean, I think he's going to bring his own vision and liberties like he did with AI. <laughs> like he needs to make it a Spielberg project. At the same time, I, I actually just remembered one. I mean, which is George Clouseau's Inferno was never completed. And then Claude Chabrol took it over and did it. And that is one that like the original, it's very far from that. Because the original Clouseau's idea was that it was going to be like all primary lighting and like very stylized. And that's not how Chabrol makes movie. So he didn't do it that way. So like when you think of these projects, would you want someone to put their own stamp or to do it exactly like it was? Probably put their own stamp, yeah, honestly, because you can't do it exactly like it was. I mean, to bring up the other side of the wind again, it was interesting how one of the scenes that Orson Welles actually managed to complete the edit of was that sex scene in the car. And when uh, Bob Murawski was editing the version that's on Netflix now, he decided to cut that scene down a little bit because even though it was Wells' original edit, the rationale was the pace of the film, once you edit things together, well, of course he would have changed it, right? Mm. Like as to fit in more with how the rest of the film was developing. And I think ultimately he was correct. I agree. I want like a three-hour documentary of just Bob Murawski going through the film and talking about choices that he made. Yeah, a commentary track. I would love it. I would love it. But it'll never happen. Nope. All those uh, backers are waiting for their (laughs) Blu-ray that's going to come in the mail any day now. 